there should be a central guy saying, please give the data and should establish incentives to them to give the data and cooperate. So incentives is, I think, very, very important thing for the data strategy. Welcome to a brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI, Mind, Machines and the Great in the Sand. Thanks that you tuned in again and that you are spending some time on geeking out over the AI community, the relevancy of human and technology and the craziness of corporate life. So this is Uli and Avery and we are your hosts for today. And we're super excited to welcome the AI passionate mind, Yanis Petrakis. He is senior key expert for data analytics and AI at the analytics lab at Siemens in the global IT department. And Yanis is passionate for searching actionable ahas in data. He thrives to help people to take the right data-driven decisions and speaks more languages that I can code. But enough of an introduction. Let's jump directly into a new exciting episode. Yanis, Davo Pasholovat Nanashe Show. That's Russian and means <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time to be with us and our audience today. And how are you? And can you maybe describe yourself? Who is Yanis and how did your path lead you to Siemens? Thank you. Thank you, Arbery, very much for the introduction. Uh, hi, hi also, Uli. So yeah, how, how can I describe myself? I am a data scientist in the fantastic team of Analytics Lab for the last four years doing different projects in the area of analytics and AI. Before I worked as a consultant, uh, I spent very much time in academia. I did my PhD in the intersections of computer science and microeconomics, and my teaching was at the Technical University of Munich in business analytics. And basically that's how I became a data scientist 10 years ago. And since then I have the luck to observe all that is going on in our field, yeah. yeah amazing. Yeah, nice. welcome here, right? Also from my side, it's awesome to engage with you as well. So we found actually a high correlation on, you know, uh, a passion for technology is also a passion for music, right? You are into music, I know it, and you have your <laughs> instrument, right? I guess right beside you, I know it, right? So can, we, can you give maybe the audience a bit of an appetizer? What kind of music passion you have? Is it doable? Uh, I will try with cold hands to play a few chords. Yeah, um, sure. Give it up. L let's see. So, yeah, that's the Oceanitude uh, by Chopin. I don't know if you could hear it. Yeah, yeah. It's a piece with a, with a lot of arpeggios going up and down, with a lot of flow, you know, the waves uh, symbolizing, you know, the impetus, the will. I, I really love this piece. <laughs> And that seems to be tragic, right? Dramatic, actually, right? So it's, um, it triggers emotion, isn't it? Huh? Yes, yes. That's a nice thing about music. It triggers emotions, yes. <laughs> nice, yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> so, um, you know, speaking of emotions, why the heck do you hate black boxes and funky slides? Can you explain oh the audience? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start with, with the black boxes. Uh, maybe this comes from the mindset of a researcher that, you know, wants to analyze stuff and, yeah, in order to, to improve them or to use in the research. 
but also as a consultant, for instance, doing uh, marketing, marketing mix modeling, I needed to explain to my client why his strategy, his marketing campaign didn't go well, right? So if I didn't understand how this box is working and it was a black box, I wouldn't be able to do that. So that's where I come from regarding black boxes and regarding Domains and black yeah. boxes. Black boxes means like then, you know, algorithmic, you know, sketches that can make no transparency about the decision process or w w yes, what, yes. what is the problem? Is that interpretability? Interpretability. Why is that, okay. Why is that a problem? Hey, it works. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other side. If it works, okay, but sometimes uh, you need to know what is inside. So, of course, there are cases where slides and also black boxes are, are great. Nothing can guess that. But yeah, I gave some examples where black boxes didn't cut it. And regarding slides, you know, uh, I want to tell you about uh, my role model, my doctor father, Professor Bichler, who is a very humble guy and doesn't do good slides and th this guy is very successful if you go for instance now to nobel prize uh, website you will see in the scientific background of the paul milgram and uh, wilson they got the economic the nobel prize you will see his work there he's very very successful and at the same time very humble so th this was my role model and then coming to the industry i experienced the totally opposite thing you know uh, like fake it until you make it all the time and concentration of the on the slides and not on the content and not on the technical excellence. And maybe I, I want to share uh, one last thing regarding the piano and technical excellence. I was practicing thousand times one passage and I was so happy I performed it in front of my teacher and her answer was, you know what, you played it correctly, but it was obvious that you were trying hard and you need to practice another thousand times to make it look effortless. And I think that's where we need to focus on. That's the level of technical excellence that we need to, to reach and not the beautification of the slides, which is can be also okay, but it shouldn't be the first thing. Mm -hmm. Though communication and getting the getting across the output of you know some kinds of innovation is obviously also key, right? And I think it's it's part part of the role. I'm not praising doing fancy slides. I'm also not very well known for doing fancy slides. But I do see, you know, we, we tend to do, we pitch ideas rather than pitch outcome, as it famously said, right? And that means, you know, pitching an outcome means like it has to be set in a context. And context does not necessarily mean you have to implement certain aspects. But you need to show and make transparency to the stakeholder, which may also business or decision makers also be, right? Um, the process of, you know, why we're doing things and why this is relevant, isn't it? Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And my objection with slides is when they are coming from people without the background and the qualification to speak about stuff and they have no content, they try only to optimize the slides. But in the case that you are, you are describing, I'm fully 100% with you. So if we talk now a bit of deeper, and you, you're a senior key expert, right? An expert, I feel, I must appreciate it. And I know you also from organizing, right, uh, these marvelous lectures. I think last time also, you know, with quite some external folks in, involved there, mm -hmm. about sharing, you know, the, the passion for data science. If you look now on the IT organization, right, in Siemens, what's the role of AI in your current organization? And can you somehow give us a bit of a glimpse of what kind of use cases you folks are doing here? 
Yes, sure. So I see it twofold. So IT should create platforms, should build platforms where the whole organization can use to apply AI. And also IT should do end-to-end use cases. And when IT is doing itself use case, also it will have a positive effect on the platforms because of the know-how. So these are, uh, I think, the two pillars. Now, uh, regarding some use cases, I will apply some recency bias. I will tell you my, my most recent one. It's a platform called AI Attack. And what is the goal of the platform? The goal is to enable any user to apply analytics and AI and focus their buy from day one on value creation rather than, you know, all this setup, all this configuration, all this burden. And it's really a high burden. And let me give you a tangible example. And for instance, if you are using a cloud service and you want to build an inference pipeline to score your model, then at some point, you, you will uh, find out that you need a Kubernetes cluster and some special access rights in order to run your inference pipeline. And this takes a lot of time, and we don't need to reinvent uh, the wheel every time. Right? Uh, IT and the platform can take uh, off the, the burden. But configuration is not only about integration to the CMS network. Uh, it's not only about doing, making the, the cybersecurity people happy and that the users don't need to, to worry about that. It's also about finding inspiration in new AI use cases. And because we want also to address all people in Siemens, we have different personas in different needs. And trainings is also a part of the project. And as pilot use cases, we have four use cases. We chose one use case for every type of data. So we have one tabular use case, one text NLP use case. What else we have? We have one image use case and a sensor data use case because also in a central headquarter IT, the, the topic of Internet of Things becomes be becoming more and more important. So we have a predictive maintenance use case. Yeah. And it's called AI attack, right? And so yes. that means what's the value? The, the value add is uh, you abstract over DevOps know-how. What's the... right? Yeah, the overall goal is, you know, the democratization of, of AI. And as a Greek, I love democracy. <laughs> now, yes, the overall goal is to have also data literate citizens who cannot code and basically everybody, also digital managers, that they have an integrated digital workbench where, you know, they can work and implement the solution, as I said, without needing to take care of all this boring stuff. <laughs> yeah. That sounds exciting. And you were just mentioning this use case, but if you have a more general perspective on the things, maybe from the inside out, what are you considering as the major breakthroughs in the field of AI in the past years? So are there some like within Siemens or maybe even outside that really blew your mind? What blew my mind is um, when I met uh, 10 years ago in a summer school, Thomas Sandholm. Thomas Sandholm is a professor at uh, CMU at the Pittsburgh University, and I knew him only by reading his paper. So I knew him as Sandholm et al. And actually, <laughs> n n n never came to my mind that this is a real person and that you can interact with him and you can shake hands, you know. And it blew my mind when I met him 10 years ago, and he was telling us in the summer school in the South South, it was uh, in Tyrol, yes, that his plan to build an AI to play the poker because poker was an important benchmark in the area. This happened in 2010. In 2017, after seven years, indeed, he released Libratus. Uh, Libratus won convincingly over, over human players. And I choose this as something that blew my mind in the area of AI because Libratus uses no data. 
it's not like other solutions that they play against themselves and they create some data they learn. Libratus is pure mathematics, pure game theory, equilibrium. Of course, coupled with some serious engineering and infrastructure. But th this fascinates me that there is no data inside. Also, poker is a incomplete or imperfect information game in the sense that there are hidden cards. So it's not like the chess where you can see everything, the whole board, all the pawns. You have this aspect. And last but not least, as a poker player, when I play poker, I adjust my strategy according to the opponent. If somebody who is bluffing every second hand, you know, I, I play differently than a conservative guy who is only playing his two, two aces. So Libratus was able to win against his opponents with a generic strategy, not tailored to every opponent. So due to these reasons, I choose Libratus. And I think it, is, it deserves a little bit more of a spotlight. I guess talking machine learning in current times means talking about data. So you were already mentioning data literacy and democratization of AI. Do you think that data literacy needs to be a crucial part of a company's DNA? Absolutely, because data is now everywhere at every function, at every role. In the most simple case, uh, you read a report with some averages. And maybe let me give you an example, because everybody knows what is an average, but what are the implications and how do you need to interpret this a bit less accessible. So Arberi, imagine we have a, a road, a left lane, a right lane, and in the middle there is a, a white uh, stripe separating this, these two lanes, and you have a drunk person, and this drunk person is walking half of the time on the left lane, half of the time on the right lane. And in the two lanes there is a high traffic, he would be hit by a car, he would be dead. So if we want to determine whether he's dead or not, we can compute the average position of him. So half left, half right. So it's in the middle. In the middle, there is no car. So we conclude the guy is alive. But if, if we take the average of every state, state is either left or right, then obviously this guy is dead. So you see in this seemingly very simple KPI, this average, If you compute it the wrong way, that you see, you conclude the totally opposite thing, right? And we only started to speak about the average, which is the most basic thing when we speak about data. Because if I start to tell you numbers, three, four, five, ten, cognitively, we cannot process these numbers. We need to summarize them. And summarize means statistics and means average. So, yeah, data literacy should be an integral part, I think, in, in the education of almost every employee. Now we have the data, we have the tools, and it's a great time for everybody to, to get into that. Mm -hmm. But would you say everybody needs to do the stats? <laughs> so if you look a bit broader, what is data literacy, right? What is somehow, it's, it's a lot, I guess, on training and being aware of. If you, if you turn things, it's like, okay, every decision needs to be somehow data evidence. Additionally, so people, folks need to be aware of how to you know, turn things into data-enriched aspects. But this obviously also refers to, you know, what means a data strategy. Can you elaborate a bit about what do you think would be the, the starting point in a corporate life on a data strategy? And the other aspect, obviously, in, in terms of management and leadership stuff like that, do we need explicit roles, right? Uh, obviously, the natural reflex in corporates is always, oh, we need a, a CDO <laughs> here, right, as a chief data officer. Or is it uh, someone dark because he needs to say, like, do move like that? or enroll that or is that we come from an area where the cdo is actually the chief digital officer she or he right pushes you know digitalization efforts and digitalization efforts without data i don't know with you know is the do but so 
do we need certain roles? And what's your view on that? I'm not sure if we need a specifically designated role. I'm not the one who would say that if we need a CDO. But what I can share are some challenges when implementing projects in analytics. And there I would see, yeah, data strategy to address them, right? Uh, so if it's a CDO or not, I don't know, but for sure, uh, this point should be somehow addressed centrally. And there are a lot of people that need to be orchestrated. So just to start with an example, I wanted to do a churn prediction. I was going from department to department. I was asking, how many customers do you have? They're the most basic things. Huh? The first department was telling me 5 million, the second 10 million. So this is the most simple KPI you can imagine. And the one department was counting the addresses and the customer names, and the other was counting every contract. So if you have two contracts, like for telephony and for whatever, for internet, it counts twice. So if there is no shared language yeah, across departments, how can you do AI? AI excels when we combine data. So we need a shared language. We need also master data and, and the possibility to combine the data over different data sources. And because this is not always given, I see approaches of machine learning to try to match the data, you know, in a fuzzy way. So these are things that should be addressed by a CDO or by a data strategy. And there is much more than that. We need data catalog, the data discovery capabilities. And I would go that far and say every data owner should publish every field and along with some queries. For instance, if you have sales data, how to use the data to calculate the revenue. Yeah. And all, all these guys should be orchestrated. If, for instance, one data owner has a goal to, uh, as a goal, a dashboard on end application, a dashboard, and he may need only two years of data, he may choose to discard all the data. But this is uh, very harmful for AI that would need uh, some historization. So th- that's where you need some central function uh, over them. And also to create a friendly environment for data scientists, uh, scientists to operate. Sometimes data scientists face a hostile environment. I, I speak here generally. If every data owner has a say and a judgment about the value proposition of your application, you are lost. There should be a central guy saying, please give the data and should establish incentives to them to give the data and cooperate. So incentives is, I think, very, very important thing for the data strategy. And of course, the list goes on and on. We can speak for many more also about the tool landscape. If everybody's using without reason a different tool, you cannot do synergies, right? So it's a lot that uh, uh, the CDO should take care of, I would say. Mm-hmm. But that means, so um, a common terminology is somehow a shared language. Mm. Data as an incentive. How do you incentivize that? That's a tricky thing. How do you? Because data itself is transparency. And uh, at least in corporate life, transparency is not always <laughs> things yeah. people want, right? And so how do you incentivize, you know, how to find that, you know, people contribute, you know, and folks join a bit of a movement with regard to data literacy? Any thought on that? Yeah, this I think this depends on, on the organization and the structure, but I had a peer telling me that if nobody's using your data, then you are irrelevant. So you have some incentives that others are using your data source. But of course, now how to implement incentives in an organization with a lot of small flexible ships? <laughs> no. this, this, can be, this can be tricky. This would require a lot of workshops and thoughts.
So, uh, speaking of ships, <laughs> if you have a birthright fuse, right, on, on somehow corporate structure, then you see mostly, you know, the famous four, you have, you know, the HQ, let's say strategy and stuff like that. Yeah. Then you have a bit of mostly R&D or somehow, I guess, center of competences or, you know, center of excellence, what they are also called, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have IT, you know, which somehow is scaling out and operationalizing out. And you have business, right, who says like market penetration, go to market, customer needs and be close. And make makes the turnovers, right? So I, I have the feeling if you look back the last last years on digitalization, right? Everybody pushed so hard on being innovative and pushing innovation, right? Also within AI or let's say machine learning and innovation being the main driver. And with this focus on you know being the main driver and, and trying to work also innovation within in the structures, right? It seems to be that the challenging part is that the collaboration was narrowed down, right? So it was really it's it's getting tougher that these you know, different part of the value chain, which are not, you know, mutual exclusive, right? That collaboration needs to be more enforced. How do we enforce that IT speaks to R&D, speaks to business, speaks to, you know, co-op? Or is it just because like, hey, that's all ships and everybody, you know, needs to post, post its value to external? What's your thought on that? Yes, first, I think that uh, this collaboration needs to be intensified. And one way to do that is if every party realizes the common benefits, right, of this uh, collaboration. And maybe let's take an example from the competence center, right, and uh, see some incentives there. And let's take the example of natural language processing. And we have an expert. We call call him Mark. So Mark, now there is the new GPT-3 model, for instance. And uh, Mark is the expert. He can judge in which cases this model is suitable and what are the prerequisites to use it, and he can advise the whole organization about it. Yeah, And also, in some use cases, he, he should develop himself only the computer center because they are very, very tricky, very complex. For instance, in patents, patents is something very similar specific, right? And uh, it's not something that you can find in, in Wikipedia. The language is different. So Mark is the deep expert who is designing, let's say, the convolutional neural network. But what is now his benefit if he tries to collaborate in an early stage with IT, right? IT won't tell him if he needs to fully connected layers or not. That's not the role of IT. But if IT is involved from an early stage, then when it comes to production environment, to operation, then IT can tell him, okay, that's our target environment. These are the packages that we can support or the libraries we can support in this environment. This is our data flows and so forth and so on. And when Mark is doing the handover, IT will be able to run this application and don't need to call him every time a change is needed. So I think both Mark and IT has has something to win out of it. You know, everybody contemplates and and realizes the benefits, then more there will be a a better collaboration. So that means both if your incentive or if your target is you want to operationalize, right? Take mm-hmm. DevOps, take IT, and take the right competences from the very beginning on, even though, you know, the portion of shared work might be too minor. But as long as we take, you know, form the teams with a, a, a deployed, you know, object in mind, will be faster? Yes, exactly. Yeah, putting the right people to the table. And also with us and the AI Lab team, we often discuss also different team structures, the aspects and reasons why some organizations on the one hand actually set up 
big piles of POCs. But then, on the other hand, they have a really hard time in scaling those proofs effectively. Um, so maybe you also experienced that. So from your perspective, what are the biggest obstacles that um, are holding back AI from becoming really productive? Do you have any best practices there? Yes, first of all, I have my fair share of POCs that didn't go to production. And what I have uh, noticed, uh, one of the most important things is the ambassador. The ambassador in the business. And here we need to speak about forward and backward propagation. For instance, we built a recommendation engine. This ambassador should go to sales agents and tell them, persuade them to use the recommendations of the engine, forward propagation. Backward propagation would be to take the feedback of the sales agent, so to tailor, to adjust the, the engine to their needs. Okay, this is very, very important to have an ambassador with power and will and you know persuasive skills. Yeah, for the application to, to get adopted and deployed. Another thing I would call it the ICE test. And it's my own name. I don't know if it's good. So take some data, put it in your Excel sheet or in your Tableau or wherever you like. And with simple operations, with some pivot tables and so on, try to identify some patterns yourself and ask yourself the question, are these patterns useful for me? Do they bring me value? And if yes, you can then start a POC and apply some machine learning to try to um, automatize the pattern recognition process and also to, to find more complex patterns. But before doing that, make sure that this brings some value to you. Also, maybe do a paper and pencil prototype. Yeah. So this is right, right at the beginning, at the early phase. I think this early phase is decisive for whether the, the POC will go to production or not. And of course, then, then there are some technicalities like Maybe the guy who did the POC didn't follow the law of parsimony, the Occam's razor. It's too complex unnecessarily or uses some exotic libraries or packages that cannot be deployed in production. So there is a lot of things like that. Or maybe the data which is available in production is different than the data in the POC phase. Or maybe the handover, you know, there are problems there to find the right people for the handover and that these people don't change every year. You know that data science like to change jobs very often. So there are a couple of challenges here. Do you also have something else to recommend to the audience for the geeks out there? Any other books or online education courses, TED Talks, newsletters for people that want to get involved or started in the area of data-driven insights with ML? Yeah. You know, usually I'm a proponent of the motto that there is nothing more practical than a good theory. But now speaking about analytics and AI, I need to confess that this motto does not apply 100%. So it's very, very practical. So I would recommend somebody to go to Kaggle, for instance, try some code challenges there or see the kernels of the others and draw some ideas. There are also dedicated websites with code challenges of increasing difficulty. Um, speaking about books, I love the book by Witten and Frank called Data Mining. Yeah, then there is Coursera, obviously, with very nice learning journeys. A lot of things. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yanis. Time was really flying with you, and we are already at the end of this session. But before we close this episode, we want to play Authentic Autocomplete with you. So let me give you some. Sentence starters, and you will just finish. Okay, let's see how fast my language model will be able to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Siemens is. Mm, Siemens is my second 
family. Wow. And my bike is... That's wow. the first one then, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, <laughs> it's a companion for sure. That is a vehicle to, yeah, to freedom and peace of mind. Nice one. Uh, innovation is... I will disappoint you here. It's an overused, diluted word. <laughs> right. Corona has taught me. Corona has taught me hmm, to not take anything for granted and to cherish every moment that uh, I am healthy and everything goes well. I have my job, my you know, my health. Yeah. <laughs> That's very beautiful. And last but not least, my personal superpower is. You know, um, uh, the ability to listen to my discussion partner and uh, to get to give him a space to persuade me. So I listen, I get persuaded. Yanis, Efra Ristoboli. Parakalo, Nasakala. It was great, Uli. It's Thanks so much for you know joining us here on, on the show, a little show here, and, and sharing a couple of minutes, right? in between the break and also a bit of the experience. I really, really loved it. And I really loved the conversation and the insights. Folks out there, stay tuned. There's even more to come. You can't believe it, right? Stay bold, committed, and open-minded. And we hear us definitely the next Siemens Eale podcast. Thanks, Yannis. Ciao, ciao. Thank you very much. 